Hello, and welcome to the Monday edition of the Upper Bowl GM podcast. Most people have off today for President's Day, but, you know, podcast world don't sleep. There were sports over the weekend. There were some things worth talking about. So, I am here with an episode. I've been going back and forth on how I want to structure Monday episodes without football to be the basis of episodes, because, you know... During the football season, college football and the NFL, as you're recapping for the weekend as a Monday episode, is pretty easy to do. Going into Mondays, going forward, I've adopted something that I know a number of shows do. It is not an original idea, but it works as a format because it covers a lot of ground. We're going to start very, very simply with the best and worst of the weekend. I've got three of each. We'll get into it in a minute. This won't be a particularly long episode. This will be a diet version of the key things from the weekend, the key storylines from the weekend. This is a little bit New York-centric, so if you are not from the New York market, I am sorry. But this is what I have the most access to information-wise. It's what I can tell the best, so that'll make it the basis of the episode. Before we get into best and worst of the weekend, please help grow the show any means possible. I've got the spiel down. I can do it pretty quick. If you're on Spotify, follow. Apple Podcasts, subscribe. If you're on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the end of the episode page. All the way down to the bottom, all the episodes, there's going to be five stars. Click the fifth star all the way to the right. Leave a written review, please. If you're on Google Play, Audioboom, Stitcher, any other platform, please follow along and be part of the show. We are ever so slowly making momentum and growing the show. It does mean a lot. I am doing this mostly out of love because this is just fun to do and it helps me with my sports-fueled psychosis, but it is good to know people are listening. The more we grow the show, the better. I will see you guys in one second with best and worst of the weekend. I don't know what I'm going to put for the drop here. I'll see you guys in a sec. And with that, I'm just going to jump on right into it. First thing on my list. Number one, I absolutely adore the North Division in the NHL. The North Division are the seven Canadian teams, the Canucks, the Flames, the Oilers, the Jets, the Senators, the Toronto Maple Leafs, and the Montreal Canadiens. Every single night. There is a game that matters in that division when there are games being played because those teams are only playing each other in this COVID-abbreviated season to minimize travel and because the Canadian government didn't want teams flying back and forth between the United States and Canada. Teams in Canada are only playing other Canadian teams. It's done a good job of minimizing the spread of COVID-19. There have only been a handful of players put on the COVID list for possible exposure There have been yet to have been any games postponed in the North Division, which is good. One game, the uh, Leafs-Canadians game, got delayed by about 40 minutes to uh, confirm some tests. Same-day rapid tests. But other than that, there have been no real major flare-ups yet. Knock on wood, I shouldn't be saying this out loud, jinxing it. But I've really enjoyed the stuff we've seen from that division. There are always 
compelling hockey games when teams in Canada meet up, even games involving the lowly Ottawa Senators, who are probably one of the worst assembled hockey teams ever, but that's on purpose. They're trying to uh, barely meet the salary cap floor, barely meet that minimum salary, and field a team of mostly guys they drafted and then spare parts from around the league whose contracts they took on to get additional draft picks because they went full fire sale teardown, whether you want to talk about Mark Stone, Ryan Dezingle, Matt Duchesne, Eric Carlson, anything they had of any value over the last few years, they traded for draft picks to go full, full fire sale to rebuild in the most aggressive way maybe we'd ever seen. And even their games are interesting because, you know, they're still winning games. I mean, they beat the Canadians a couple weeks ago. They beat the Jets last week. It It's funny when, like, the worst team in the league still manages to win hockey games. Uh, I'm never going to complain about seeing the worst team in any league give another team a fight. I mean, the Jaguars won a game week one in the NFL season. It's still funny when they beat a team or they give a team a scare. And going off of that, talking about the Canadian division, over the weekend we got some really good games on Saturday night. We had the Canadians and the Maple Leafs at 8 o'clock, and then the Canucks and Flames at 10.30. Two awesome games on Saturday night. Saturday was Hockey Day in Canada. It's a marketing thing for Sportsnet. Yes, it's a marketing thing, but at the same time, it gave us two very entertaining hockey games, and I was thoroughly impressed with everything I saw. The Leafs and the Habs are both legit. And I know that's not really saying much. They have the two best records in that division so far, about 15 to 17 games in, depending on what team you are in the league. The American teams have a little bit less. They're closer to 13, 14 games in, some even less than that because of COVID pauses, that kind of thing. But speaking generally about the Canadian division, the Habs and Leafs, the style of hockey they play, they play two different styles. The Leafs, they play a very open-ended style of play that is conducive to creating a lot of offense, but also conceding a lot of offense. Whereas Montreal, they do not give up a ton of scoring chances, and because they are so often in control of the puck, they are able to create chances. And it's led to very nice underlying numbers for Montreal. And Toronto's underlying numbers have started to straighten out. They haven't been as reliant on their power play to create scoring chances and to score goals. At one point early in the season, Montreal was scoring on about 50% of power plays, which is bonkers. In a typical season, the number one teams in the entire league's power play is usually in the low 30s, maybe high 20s, depending on the year. So no one was ever going to finish a 56-game season with a 50% power play percentage, but when you can put a power play on the ice of Morgan Riley, William Nylander, Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, and then Zach Hyman, and then you get Tavares on your second power play, or if you really want to load it up, you can put Tavares on that first power play instead of Zach Hyman, and really just whip the puck around until someone has a clean look. But one of the interesting things from that game on Saturday night was there was about a minute 35 to go. The Canadians are winning 2-1. to one. Toronto has four forwards and Morgan Riley out there. They could not gain the offensive zone 
because Montreal was doing such a good job at the blue line of either forcing Toronto to dump the puck in to go in and get it, or just standing them up at the line and not letting them pass. We saw textbook defensive hockey from Montreal, and they do it in a way that does not result in them chasing the puck, that does result in them blocking a lot of shots and throwing a lot of hits. Montreal depriving the other team of the offensive zone, whether it's at in the neutral zone, muddying them up and forcing them to dump in there, or if it's at their own blue line and forcing the other team to dump and chase, Montreal's defense is something I don't know why more teams aren't doing where they're trying to clog up through the neutral zone. It's not like Montreal has a litany of defensive stalwarts. Shea Weber's pretty good, Jeff Petrie's pretty good, but after those two... Whether you want to talk about Romanov, Ben Sherratt, Victor Mete, none of those guys is, you know, Nick Cronwall throwing hip checks and knocking guys into the bench. It's just good, sound, structured hockey, which is something I'm going to talk about a little bit when I get to one of the worst of the week and when I talk about the Rangers a little bit. But what we saw from Montreal was a textbook game plan on how to beat a team more talented than you. You have to keep the game close, and you have to go to the dirty areas. The goal that Brendan Gallagher scored that eventually went on to be the game-winning goal, the Habs won 2-1, the second goal the Canadians scored, was the textbook dirty area. I'm going to be in the net mouth. I'm going to play a rebound, and I'm going to get this puck in there because I'm more willing to be in this part of of the ice than you are. It's that simple. When it comes down to those dirty area goals, the whether you want to talk about a redirection on a shot from the point or a rebound off a goalie or a pass, a slap pass off the end boards that comes back out in front, if you want to occupy the space in front of the goalie and the other team is playing good defense, you are jockeying for position against another person who is often a lot bigger than you because you want to be there more because you know that's an area of the ice you need to be at if you want to score goals. You need to be in the area around the goalie, and you need to make the goalie's life difficult. And Brendan Gallagher, who seems to have been in the league maybe my entire life, but is still somehow only 28 years old. Granted, he came into the league as a 20-year-old. He's eight years in at this point. It seems like he's a lot older than he actually is for a number of reasons, mostly because... I've known his entire existence in the NHL. There are not a ton of guys I've seen in the league my their entire professional careers, being that I'm only 24 years old. But Brendan Gallagher is one of them. Chris Kreider, not to get too far ahead of myself, is another one of them. So it really does seem like Brendan Gallagher's been in the league forever. But at 28 years old, he has managed as someone as an undersized player, someone who's only about 5'10", 5'11", Someone who I've stood next to in person on the street outside Madison Square Garden. He is not a tall person. He does not look particularly physically imposing, but he has carved out a niche for himself as a net front presence kind of player who is able to score those dirty goals that teams like Montreal that do not have an elite player on their team need to put together a greater than the sum of their parts kind of effort, and it's what Montreal has done thus far, and has made them compelling as a hockey team. They have very good underlying numbers, whether you want to talk about chances for and against, expected goals, expected goals against, that kind of thing. 
they have all of their guys pulling in the same direction. Claude Julien, for all of his warts, is a good hockey coach and gets good results from his guys. Talking about the other game from Saturday night, the Canucks and the Flames. Vancouver's had a very rough go of it thus far into the season. They lost a number of players going into this year who left in free agency. Whether you want to talk about Markstrom, whether you want to talk about Tanev, whether you want to talk about Troy Stetcher, Vancouver lost a considerable amount of talent. Their general manager, Jim Benning, has always been a little bit of a lightning rod amongst the Vancouver hockey community. They have paid premium prices for not premium players, whether you want to talk about Louis Erickson, whether you want to talk about Jay Beagle, Tyler Myers. They've always paid a little bit more. They've paid the free agency tax, which I've talked about on the show a number of times, where in the hockey world, if you get a player as an unrestricted free agent, you're paying usually about a million to a million and a half more than that player is actually worth because in free agency, a player's value is inflated because their entire career up until that point, they have been underpaid. So someone like Tyler Myers, you're paying a million and a half. Same thing with Louis Erickson. You're paying more than that guy is worth because he got to free agency and he's better than any option you have at this current moment. So you you gotta you pay that premium and think you're not that far away. This won't set us back. This guy can help us get over that hump is your assumption and we saw Vancouver go very far last year. We saw them get to the conference final. And they had opportunities. They really were reliant on their goaltending, whether you want to talk about Thatcher Demko or whether you, you want to talk about Markstrom. They really, really were not a well-structured team. They created a lot of chances, but they also conceded a lot of chances. I know this year in particular that's come back to bite them in the ass because their goalies have not played as well as they did last year. And it it is in part because of the brand name guys. Uh, Elias Pettersson has not scored at the same level he did last year. Quinn Hughes is one of the worst players in the league right now in terms of expected goals in for and against. Uh, Quinn Hughes is a good hockey player. I think a lot of his problems stem from the overall structural issues that Vancouver's having right now who he's been on the ice with, who've been playing forward when he's been out there. Um, a little bit of a regression in terms of what they've gotten from their goal to tender position. I think there is a passable, I'll say passable, attempt at a playoff team that can be put together out of the guys Vancouver currently has, but that is incumbent upon some positive regression at the goaltender position that requires Quinn Hughes to start driving possession again. He had a splendid goal Saturday night in the second period against the Flames where he was coming down the net mouse between the two circles and fainted to his left like he was going to pass, made one deke, and then beat Markstrom top shelf. It was a, it was a very impressive goal to see from a defenseman. Quinn Hughes is not the problem in Vancouver. His underlying numbers are very bad, like some of the worst in the entire league at the defensive position, but... I think over time, his numbers will begin to get back to where they should be. Of course, I've said it more than once on this show, in hockey and in baseball, these analytics are very helpful, but they are helpful over a long scale. 15 games is not a season. 
Hell, 56 games is not a season. It's why we might get some funky results out of guys we've historically seen play pretty well. Because just 56 games is not a full sample that we're used to. We saw it in the baseball season this past year where it was only a 60-game regular season. And we saw some guys who we typically perceived as pretty good, like Chris Bryant, have abysmal seasons because they only had 60 games. 60 games is, you know, a 162-game season, 60 out of 162, you're talking a little more than a third of what you would typically get in a season around there. That's not, that's not a full season, and it's hard to judge a guy off of that, because you usually have all of those days to get out of your ruts. I assume Quinn Hughes will get out of that rut. I assume Vancouver will figure it out because they have talented hockey players. Whether you want to talk about Brock Besser, whether you want to talk about JT Miller, Bo Horvat, there are talented hockey players on that team. I do want to try and get a Canucks episode to come upon one of my friends to come on. I, I haven't broached it with her yet, but I will at some point because it'll illuminate things a little bit more because I'm looking at it from an outside perspective as an objective observer of what would I do with that team right now if I was trying to get them better. I want to hear it from someone who's, you know, watching every single game with the impending doom of, well, we're going to waste Quinn Hughes, Brock Besser, Elias Pettersson all at the same time and have to pay them way too much money in two years, and we're not going to get to keep one of them, and we're going to have to start over, which is the impending doom of building a hockey team. Now, the first worst of the weekend I have here, the Rangers not being able to score a fucking goal. I do not want to hear how good of a hockey team the Boston Bruins are. I just don't. This comes from a number of places when I put together this opinion. I even rewatched this game. I went and reactivated my NHL TV. I gave the NHL my $25 to go back and rewatch this game on Sunday night during the Avalanche Golden Knights game. That was on one TV. I pulled up that Bruins Ranger game from Friday night again to really look at the shot chart that the analytics websites have versus what I was seeing on the ice. And relatively speaking, they're within a foot, a foot and a half in terms of the shot chart. Because when I'm looking at the shot chart, meaning physically where a player is located on the ice when they take a shot. When I am looking at that, I can usually get a decent idea of what is available to them. And I really wanted to see how they synced up versus what I was seeing on the screen in terms of the eye test versus the analytics. Those shot charts are how expected goals are calculated. Every single one of those X's on the virtual representation of what's supposed to be the ice surface has an expected goals value. The higher the number, up to one, the more valuable that is, the higher likelihood it will result in a goal. The Rangers had ample opportunities to score on Friday night. They got the puck to dangerous areas. Their power play is fundamentally broken, and I'm going to talk about their power play in one second, but my problem with the way the Rangers have played the last few days, especially without Panarin to drive their power play, 
there is a fundamental lack of creativity in what they are doing. At even strength, if they are not coming in on odd man rushes, they are not creating sustained offensive pressure. They are cycling the puck, not getting maybe one shot on goal, two sometimes if they can recover the rebound, and they're not forcing the goalie to make difficult saves. They are, a lot of the time, dumping the puck into the offensive zone from the blue line and just not winning the 50-50 puck in the corner with the defenseman, and they're turning the puck over. I know we fundamentally think of dumping and chasing as part of offense, but if you were not recovering that puck, that's just turning the puck over to the other team. And it's time we start thinking of it in that respect. And I know that, you know, no one who works the Rangers beat or has a Rangers column, whether you want to talk about Larry Brooks, who is one of the other uh, lowlights of the weekend, or Rick Carpinello, or Vince Mercogliano, or Colin Stevenson. None of them think about hockey in a critical strategy standpoint. It's just stenographer taking what David Quinn and the players tell them and framing it in a narrative based on a single game, and they're not looking at it against the bigger picture of there is no creativity. They are doing the same thing every single night, and if it doesn't work against whoever they happen to be playing, they're just not going to score. And I don't think that's acceptable in the lens of, you know, professional hockey. Um, these are professional hockey players, and David Quinn proposes himself to be a professional hockey coach. Um, I will give you the easiest example imaginable. Me and my friends play EASHL and EA Sports' NHL franchise. Typically speaking, our main source of offense is cross-crease passes, trying to catch the goalie going from one post to the other and scoring on the opposite side. If that is not there, we do not force it through the middle. If the other team has defensemen in the crease that are breaking up that cross-crease and not letting the puck through... We stop doing it. Have the Rangers stopped forcing blind passes through the middle of the ice to no one in particular? No, they haven't. And that is reflective on coaching. I don't care how good of a teacher David Quinn is. I don't care how good of a motivator David Quinn thinks he is. At some point, you need to call a spade a spade, and David Quinn is not good at in-game adjustments. The Rangers' offense is entirely dependent upon odd man rushes and catching the goalie off balance right now, and it's even more reflective on the power play because it's the same problem. There is no creativity in terms of what to do with the puck. I know that not having Tony D'Angelo on the first power play like they did last year probably hurts them. I do not care. Adam Fox is a better hockey player than Tony D'Angelo. He's not as good of a skater, but he sees the ice just as well. He passes just as well, and that's all they need. Personnel-wise, there are no problems. Power play with Adam Fox, with Mika Zibanejad, with Chris Kreider, with Pavel Buchnevich, and then whether you have Panarin, whether you want to have Lafreniere, whether you want to have Kako, whether you want to have even Ryan Strom, I know they've had out there at times. 
at some point you need to have a solution to your problem. I know they were doing the four righties and the one lefty power play, the one lefty being Kreider for the first few weeks of the season, and it wasn't producing amazing results, but it was producing results nonetheless. They got to get another lefty out there just from a handedness perspective, because if you're going to force that cross-ice pass, it's got to be to someone on their strong side where they can fire the puck one time. Um, Having four righties effectively neuters the person who's on the right-hand side as a bumper. It takes away their ability to shoot because they are shooting from such a low percentage angle is the way I'll describe it. So having Ryan Strom on that side does not make sense from a strategy standpoint. You should have Kako there. You should have Lafreniere there. You could have Buchnevich there. Any of those three guys opposite Zabinijad, who's your main trigger man, is where you want to be. And you also need to have Zabinijad pass at some point. I know, I know, I know he's in a drought right now, so he's really trying to force it. But if he is shooting every single time he gets the puck on the power play, you're effectively telling the other team what you were going to do. And it's really hard to recover one of those pucks if he just misses the net cleanly. And the other team gets possession, they clear it down, they burn off 20 seconds. It's frustrating to watch. I want to see creativity, whether it's change. I've had enough of David Quinn cycling the personnel and just changing the guys that are on the power play. I want to see them attempt something different on the power play. I would like to see more point shots. I'd like to see Adam Fox shooting from the point. If you're going to have Kreider in front of the net, he's one of the better players in the league at redirecting the puck from the point. I'd like to see more point shots with Kreider attempting to redirect. I would like to see Buchnevich, if he's on the first power play, shooting more from the right circle on his offside because it's easier for him to shoot if his hands are towards the middle of the ice because he's a lefty shooter. I'd like to see more of him shooting from there as opposed to just Zabinijad firing his one-timer that hasn't worked for him yet this year. I assume with times of Inijad's shooting percentage will bounce back. Again, it's hard to say a 56-game season is hard to judge on, but the pieces are there for the Rangers to have a good power play. They are just not executing, executing, and their coach is not changing what they're doing, so it's really compounding the problem. Um, The next thing I have here, this is a short one, but this is a good thing. The NHL, talent-wise, is in good shape. When I say talent-wise, I mean there are so many good hockey players in the league right now. And it was on display this weekend. Whether you want to talk about the Friday night games, the Saturday night games, the Sunday night games, there were star power everywhere. You start with the Avalanche and the Golden Knights. You got Mark Stone against Nathan McKinnon. Those are two of the ten best players in the world on the same ice surface. You go back to Saturday night. You talk about the Leafs and the Canadians. The Leafs got like three of the 15 best players in the entire league. You talk about Warner, Matthews, Tavares. That's three of the 15, three of the 20 best players in the entire league. The Canadians are a little bit different. They don't have any one elite player. You go over to Vancouver. 
gun to my head, I'd probably say Elias Pedersen and Quinn Hughes are two of the 20 best players in the entire league. You talk about the Islanders, who have Matt Barzell, one of the uh, 20, 25 best players in the league, against the Bruins, who have Pasternak and Bergeron, who two of the 20, 25 best players. There are so many good players in the NHL right now, and it makes every single game compelling because there were just so many guys who were good at hockey. And I think about the state of the league five, ten years ago where there were not this many high-end players. And yes, it is tied into the style of hockey that's played now that's more open-ended, that's more conducive to offensive-oriented players who are able to cycle the puck, get the puck to dangerous areas, and rip shots. But at the same time, this is better TV, it's better hockey, it's more entertaining. You want to see guys creating chances, and you want to see goalies making insane saves. When I think of what makes playoff hockey so insanely intense, it's a team that's pinned in their own zone for 45 and a half seconds, their forwards whipping the puck around with ridiculous velocity tape to tape, and a goalie has to dive across the net mouth and get their body in front of it and stop a goal. On a nightly basis, you've got elite players pretty much in every single game. Even if they're not top 10, top 20, top 30, you just, you want to talk about like an average team? The Minnesota Wild. Kirill Kaprizov? I mean, they're old, but that Parisi can still dial it up every now and then. Ryan Spurgeon's an elite defensive defenseman. You talk about teams like Arizona with Clayton Keller, a younger guy who's trying to find his way in the league. There are awesome players to watch in every single game. Even Ottawa has Tim Stutzel. They got Brady Kachuk. They got Thomas Shabbat. Elite, elite players, top 1% of hockey players in the entire world are on the worst team in the league. And it's why it's so frustrating to see the league of bungle situations like this. Perfect example. Sunday, I wake up, Daytona 500 Sunday, excited. I know the Penguins are playing the Capitals at 3 o'clock. And I know there's a Sunday night NBC hockey game, but I don't know what that hockey game is, so I, I I didn't look into it. I figured it'll come on after Washington and Pittsburgh, and like midway through the first period of Pittsburgh-Washington, there's an intermission, and one of the commercials is for the Golden Knights and the Colorado Avalanche, you know, like two of the three best teams in the entire league. Like, if this were two NBA teams, like this is the equivalent of the Lakers playing the Clippers in Sunday night primetime, and I... An extreme hockey fan did not know it was a thing until I saw a commercial for it during a game earlier that same day. It's painfully frustrating that the NHL does such a lackluster job just getting eyeballs on its marquee matchups. Like I said, the Avalanche playing the Golden Knights is the equivalent of the Clippers playing the Lakers in a regular season game, and... That should be worthy enough of being on NBC in primetime. I don't know what NBC has on its Sunday night lineup, but 
the NHL needs to get off of cable and onto network over air television. I know not a lot of people are still only on network over air television, but a lot more people, if they're flicking channels, will come across NBC than they will NBCSN. Colorado and Vegas are, I think, the two best teams in terms of odds to win the Stanley Cup right now in mid-February, and either of these teams could win the Cup, and I wouldn't be surprised, and, you know, I didn't know this game was being played until 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoon when I saw a commercial. Less than ideal. You, you want to see a little bit more from the NHL in terms of growing the game because the state of the game has never been better. The on-ice talent is so offensively inclined. Everybody can skate so well. It is beautiful to watch the good teams in the league right now. And that wasn't the case not that long ago. I mean, the style of hockey, like the Kings played like six years ago when they won a Stanley Cup against the Rangers. It wasn't pretty. They just beat the shit out of the Rangers in the corners, won on the loose pucks, and cross-checked people, and they won a cup. It wasn't pretty, but it worked for them. Now, going to one of my worsts of the weekend, I do want to talk a little bit about what NASCAR keeps doing, especially this time of year when they are running races in February. This is the third year in a row where the Daytona 500 just had a several hour rain delay. Last year it got pushed back where they had to run the race on a Monday. It ended up finishing on Monday. NASCAR needs to suck it up and start running these races earlier in the day when the weather is conducive as opposed to working. I understand they have obligations to their TV carrier, to Fox, but at the same time, did Fox really need a three-hour uh, pre-race show for the race today? Couldn't we have just, you know, run the race from 11 to 2 o'clock when there was no rain instead of watching six packages, eight packages about various storylines during the season? I understand the pre-game show is important. Those journalists who put together the packages for the pre-game show put in a lot of work to make those happen. The Michael Strahan one with Denny Hamlin and Michael Jordan and Bubba Wallace was particularly good. The one that they got Dale Jr. to record talking about his late father, Dale Sr., who passed away 20 years ago during the running of the Daytona 500. Um, the package about Pitbull's new team, because Pitbull's a co-owner of the 99 team of the car Daniel Suarez is driving. I understand all of that. The Ryan Newman package that Tom Rinaldi did was good, of course. Tom Rinaldi's one of the best TV journalists we have in the sports universe today. I understand all of the work that went into making that happen. At the same time, you lost so, so much of your TV audience by being stuck in a rain delay for six hours the race started around 2:30. they ran 15 laps there was a really bad accident and during the yellow flag to clean up that accident there was a lightning strike and then a rainstorm came through and as i'm recording they told their dr the drivers to get in their cars at a quarter to nine they are saying they are going to attempt to start the race at nine o'clock that is extremely dependent on whether a rain cell breaks up that is somewhere about 40 minutes to an hour outside of Daytona Beach, Florida, where Daytona International Raceway is. 
I would like to see this race finish on Sunday. I would not complain if they gave us the Daytona 500 on a Monday on President's Day when everyone is home. I can watch the entire race, day drink, really bask in the vibes. Daytona 500 is one of the great sports spectacles we have in the United States. If the race resumes tonight and, you know, they have a fraction of the audience they had at 2.30 when there was a green flag to start the race, fine. But at the same time, this is entirely avoidable if you just start the race earlier in the day. You have access to the weather forecast. You're already dealing with a reduced capacity crowd. If there were ever a time to experiment with an earlier race start time to be more conducive to your weather forecast... A day like today, when you knew there was going to be rain, it was just a matter of when it came, this was the opportunity to do that. Instead, six-hour rain delay, hopefully finish the race tonight, Sunday night, instead of doing like 20, 30 laps under green flag, and then the rain coming, and then having to wait until Monday. For any league, any sport, any association... You want as many people as possible watching your marquee events. If the NFL had to uh, rain delay the Super Bowl and they couldn't play until 2 in the morning on Sunday night because of thunder and lightning this past week, I think the NFL probably would have waited till Monday or the following week to do it because they're not going to risk the TV audience because the TV audience is what matters. Okay, my NASCAR rant is done. I hope they finish this race on Sunday. Ricky Stenhouse made it through that big wreck, the guy I picked on Friday to win the race. That is half the battle in trying to handicap a NASCAR race at a super speedway when you're talking about Talladega or Daytona, is can your guy you pick make it to the end of the race? That wreck on lap 15 knocked out like 12, 13 cars out of the race, where they haven't been able to work on it during the rain delay because it's under red flag conditions. The car can't be worked on until the red flag is lifted. When the cars are back on the track under yellow flag as they're doing the pace laps, then the car can be worked on. But as I'm recording now, I'm looking to my right, and they are going back to the broadcast team that is at the speedway. So it does seem like they are going to attempt to resume this race on Sunday night, which is a good thing. In the interest of speeding this along so I can watch the end of the race so I can have some things to talk about, I will talk about one of the things near and dear to my heart that I do care about significantly. This is one of the important things, and it is in my it is a best of the weekend, but this is just a few words of appreciation for Jurgen Klopp, the manager of Liverpool Football Club, my football club, my soccer club. I understand how difficult it has been the last few weeks. For those of you who don't know, Jurgen Klopp's mom, Elizabeth, passed away. She was 81 years old. Klopp was not able to be with her. She was back in Germany. He would not have been able to go back to visit her because of the pandemic restri travel restrictions in the European Union. He would not have been able to come back to manage the club if he went to Germany during the week to be with her before she passed away. And he's obviously dealing with some emotional anguish. Losing family is difficult. It's especially difficult for someone like Klopp, who his dad passed away when he was extremely young. Jurgen's dad passed away when he was only in his 30s, when Klopp was still an active soccer player. And for most of Klopp's post-playing career, he's only had his mom as 
his sole parent left in his life, and the loss of a loved one is never easy, and I understand the, uh, the, pu the pundit vultures are out to circle around around Klopp that, well, yeah, you won the league last year, terrific. Well, what'd you do the year after you won the league? Well, you finished in fifth? That sucks. I, as a understanding, compassionate, reasonable Liverpool fan, I came into this season not expecting to win the league again. I understood how difficult it is to win the league, all the factors that have to go into winning it, you have to get lucky, your opponents, when you're in contention for the title, have to falter at points. All of that, all of that. As soon as Liverpool lost Van Dijk back in the fall of 2020, when the season was just getting into a groove, I knew it was going to be a steep uphill climb, but then you lose Gomez, you have to play two midfielders at center back. I just want everyone to take a deep breath about Jurgen Klopp, about the state of Liverpool. We won the league for the first time in 30 years last year. I love Jurgen Klopp. I am eternally grateful for Jurgen Klopp and the air of legitimacy he has given Liverpool since he became the manager. We are not that far removed from Brendan Rodgers, Kolo Torre, Markovic, Fabio Barini, Mario Balotelli, Martin Skirtle. We are not that far removed from barely being able to make Europa League. And in Klopp's tenure, we won a Champions League and a Premier League. Let's cut the man a break. Let's give him the time he deserves to grieve the loss of his mother. And let's give him an offseason to retool the roster like we know he wants to. Jurgen, thinking of you. I'm sorry for your loss. And I hope, I hope, I hope you can try to reminisce on how special your mother was and how important a woman she was to you and just try and remember the good times it's what i've done when i've lost family members is i think about the good times i think about what they would want me to do in these kind of in these difficult situations and it doesn't make me feel better but it gives me some sense of direction and what to do with that anguish I'm feeling in the presence of loss because it's the hardest thing we have to do as people is deal with loss of our friends, our family, the people we care about. I am sorry for your loss, Jurgen. I took a little bit of a pause during the uh, process of recording this episode to watch the end of the Daytona 500 and what an ending, man. The Penske Fords, they were they were going for it. Kozlowski was pushing Logano and McDowell was up pushing Kozlowski and the nature of super speedway racing when you have to get pushed by cars behind you to pick up track position, um you lose a bit of control of the situation because you're dependent on a car behind you hitting you squarely so you can carry that momentum forward, you're always going to be putting yourself at risk of that kind of last lap accident, which we've seen 
a number, a number of times at Daytona and at Talladega. Very grateful to see um, everyone get out of that wreck okay. Kozlowski and Kyle Busch especially. That, that was a particularly, that was a bad wreck. Kozlowski's car was on fire. Kyle Busch took a little while to get out of his car. I'm very glad to see that um, everyone was okay. And good for Michael McDowell winning his first ever Cup Series race. And good for one of the small teams for Front Row Motorsports to win that race. That was a mini uh, best of the weekend there. That was very fun, even though the race took five and a half, six hours to resume after a rain, mid-afternoon rain delay. Super Speedway Racing always delivers, and what, what a finish. The last thing I've got here on my rundown for best and worst of the weekend. I hate to end on a bad note here, but uh, Larry Brooks, at some point, you have to be removed from your job. If you are writing about pro sports in your 70s and you are the painfully out of touch old white person who doesn't understand the generational divide in coverage, especially if you're someone like Larry Brooks who immediately blocks anybody on social media who criticizes anything he publishes. Um, the D'Angelo puff piece was just pretty gross, man. Uh, he said the worst thing you can do to a person is accuse them of being racist instead of, um, you know, actually being racist and, uh, went out of his way to clarify that, uh, the, the insensitive slur that Tony D'Angelo had used in junior hockey was, um, an ethnic slur instead of a racial slur, because that makes it that much more important. And Larry went out of his way to, uh, bow at the altar of the Rangers for his access, because let's face it, a colonist without access has no use, and in today's day and age, especially in the legacy media publications where the only thing those publications, whether you want to talk about the newspapers, you want to talk about the athletic even to some degree, their only value above people like me who are making content independently is the access they have to the players and coaches. Um, I can tell you more about hockey how the results of the game and why they happen than Larry Brooks can with a couple of charts and some spreadsheets based on how a game was played. I can look at every single shot on goal on a chart from where it is on the ice, rewatch the game, and I can tell you what happened on every single play. Larry Brooks goes into the locker room with his little tape recorder and doesn't really ask questions. I, I know Larry likes to write questions in his columns instead of asking them to people on his beat. And then, um, Pretending that he doesn't know the answer instead of, you know, finding out why. And we know why, because he doesn't want to know the answer, because he doesn't want to ask anyone a difficult question, because he doesn't want to risk his precious access, because then he doesn't get to hold his nose up at the people like me on the internet who are trying to actually help people understand what's going on instead of just pretending to be smarter than everyone else. And it's painfully, painfully frustrating to see people who are phoning it in at their job, at a job you would give a limb for. That D'Angelo Puff piece was embarrassing for all parties involved. I don't know whether it was the Rangers or D'Angelo's agent, Pat Brisson, who organized this sit-down for this interview, but uh, just do better. 
Tony D'Angelo has had three different organizations in the NHL say, no thank you, we've had enough. He does not get to bare his soul. He does not get to say sorry. He was not sorry any of the other times he got booted off of a team for being insubordinate, for being disrespectful, for being just a, a general jackass. All of those things, one chance you get. You get one chance to say, all right, he's a young guy. He didn't learn his lesson. That's going. That's overlooking the whole throwing an ethnic slur at someone on your junior hockey team. You still aren't entitled to another chance. And the way that story was framed was that something egregious had happened to Tony D'Angelo, that he was being persecuted for having Republican-leaning views instead of, like, you know, just outwardly liking QAnon tweets and retweeting some of the lunatic people that the president, the former president, President Trump, had, you know, retweeted and that kind of thing, where just outwardly sharing lunatic shit. And at some point, enough is enough. And the ranger said, all right, Tony, we've had enough of your bullshit. That's it. You're done. He doesn't, he's not entitled to another opportunity. And then the audacity of the pro writers hockey, uh, the pro hockey writers association to make, go out of their way to bump Brooks's piece on their social media feeds. Disgraceful. It's what happens when you have people who are out of touch with social issues, the current political landscape, the current social landscape, writing about this stuff. It's the same problem we have in mainstream political writing, is these people do not understand the, the marketplace of ideas does not work when one side gets to dictate the flow of the conversation and their ideas are considered equal. The marketplace of ideas does not work when all the ideas are treated as equal when some of them do not work. Tony D'Angelo is not a victim here. Yes, someone wrote a news story that the team has pushed back on and said did not happen. Okay, and if it wasn't true, how come other teams aren't rushing at, jumping at the bit to trade for a 53-point defenseman with a year of team control under market value? How come? I got a lot of questions that the Rangers have still yet to ask answer, and that no one who covers the team has bothered to ask because no one actually cares. There is no obligation to the truth when you are writing about sports in the New York media market. The obligation is to the team to keep your access. That's enough of me on my soapbox. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Not sure what the episode will be. We'll see how Monday goes. Enjoy your day off, and uh, if you're in the Northeast, I hope you don't get snowed in. I'll see you guys.